So here we are, as we said, the third Sunday of Advent. We've lit the candle that represents joy, this mark and sign of being a follower of Jesus. And the sermon title today is Transforming Joy. You've heard two passages of Scripture, one of them a well-known Christmas passage, and another one that might not be considered a Christmas text at all. Once again, the Christmas passage was this, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy that will be for all the people. So we'll get to this passage, this Christmas text, just a little later this morning. Well, I want to tell you something. Over the past few years, I have... Uh, become something of an expert, might I say, in children's television viewing. There are trends. I have learned about this with my grandchildren, my two granddaughters, about what show is popular at a specific time. Having two granddaughters has boosted my interest in all of this, and while their mom and dad try to keep them away from too much TV viewing, I still have a chance to sit down with them and watch a show or two. Uh, during one recent season, one of their recent favorites passed by now, but before it was Paw Patrol. It's a story about these little pups who are ready for action to save others from scary situations that they've gotten themselves into. And somehow, each of these little dogs has special abilities that allow them to help out those who are in trouble. And they're always ready for a rough, rough rescue. <laughs> well, a few decades before that, when our kids were young, there were lots of other shows. One of them was this low-budget Japanese show called The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. How many of you have heard of that? Okay, here we are with five ordinary teenagers that become superheroes. And they gained the ability to morph into color-coded suits that boosted their strength, endurance, and fighting skills. And the special phrase of this show was, it's morphin' time. As different as these shows are, somehow there is something that is in common with these two shows. Little pups that seem rather cute and harmless, non-consequential, are able to be heroic. And teenagers that don't seem to be out of the ordinary, spectacularly become powerful in taking on the forces of evil. It's Morphin time. And I want you to think about this passage that we read in the Transfiguration in Matthew 17. So um, Matthew 17, if you have your Bibles, you can open to it, but it'll also be on the screen and we'll track through just verse by verse as we try to understand this passage better of the transfiguration. Verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
Did you notice that Jesus pulled aside a smaller group of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to be with him? Even though he worked with the twelve and then with the seventy, he also knew the importance of spending time with a few. And for those of you who offer leadership, I know so many of you do in many different ways, I want to remind you that there are times when it's good to focus on a few. Years ago, one Christian friend said to me, who are the two or three that you are most significantly investing your life into? Jesus knew the value of going small in order to make big impact He didn't always take the masses with him. And here he was going up onto the mountain, but he just pulls a few to be with him. In verse 2, we read this. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. I want you to notice the contrast from the Christmas story. At the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus... Actually, Jesus is hardly noticed. Jesus enters in simplicity, in poverty. At his birth, Jesus veiled himself. But here at the Transfiguration, for the only time in his earthly career, his dignity was made gloriously clear to these three disciples. And this story was recorded so that we might have an inside picture of what happened. His face shone, his clothes became as white as light, and here is the light of the world. Jesus entering into the world and his whole life shining in the darkness. Here in the transfiguration, Jesus appears in his glory, which he had with the Father before the world was. He was transfigured. He was instantly metamorphosed before his disciples. It was morphin time. That's the Greek word uh, that is used here, that he was changed, simply making visible what he was all along. Then notice this in verse 3. It's up on the screen. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Who's the one who has the final authority for the people of God? Moses. Moses gave us the law. Elijah. Elijah was the great prophet who spoke powerfully, but he prepared people for the way of the Lord. Here appeared these great ones talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, Old Testament and New Testament are friends. Listen to Dale Bruner's words. The Old Testament and the New Testament sing a duet, but the New Testament carries the melody. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are in conversation, but Jesus is the Lord of Moses and Elijah. And then verse 4, we read this. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's tendency, I think, 
also like mine, is that he is too eager to speak. Here Jesus is talking in glory with Moses and Elijah. And Peter steps in. Peter steps in wanting to do things for Jesus instead of letting Jesus speak. In fact, it's interesting how when Peter speaks, he's there with James and John, and he says, here, Jesus, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to build these shelters. Like, what are James and John going to do? It's like he just steps in, and leadership is not, first of all, doing things for Jesus as much as it is letting him speak. And by the way, in chapter 16, Peter also doesn't let Jesus speak. When Jesus talked about going to the cross, Peter jumps in all too quickly and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. I think there is some humor in this verse. Notice the very first phrase, While Peter was still talking, (laughs) even the gospel writers knew that Peter was a talker. God stops Peter in the midst of his many words. Peter, be silent. I still remember my grade one report card. The report was this, areas improvement, Sheldon talks too much. (laughs) Proverbs 10, 19, when there are many words, sin is not absent. But here in the Gospel of Matthew, God the Father speaks up only twice. Gospel of Matthew, we only hear the Father speaking two times. And both times the Father says this, This is my priceless Son, and I am deeply pleased with him. The voice from heaven means that God wants us to honor the Son more than anyone else. Jesus was transfigured so that we might know how much Jesus means to God and who he should be to us. There are three additional words that the Father adds that are not found in the baptism story. Here the Father says, listen to him, meaning listen to Jesus. Even with Moses and Elijah present, the Father says, listen to him, not Listen to them. And listen to him means obey him. Let us do what he says. And then verses 6 and 7. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. At the birth of Jesus, the shepherds were filled with fear And at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were terrified. Some people are afraid of spiders. Others of heights or flying. Others are fearful of speaking in front of a group or being laughed at. And others are afraid of death. We may be afraid of diminishing health or the insecurity of our jobs. What are you afraid of? Maybe there are fears that all of us struggle with. But God never wants fear to be the final word. God has gone to great lengths 
to communicate good news. He sent a star in the sky, angelic messengers, a pregnant virgin. He sent his beloved son. Here is good news of great joy. But here at the transfiguration, Jesus shines, not just to shine, but to help us up on our feet. Don't you love those words where where Jesus comes to pick up the disciples who fall down because of fear? The light leads to vision. That's what Pastor Richard reminded us of last week. And that light helps us on our way. And then verse 8. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So in this story, Jesus alone is transfigured. And at the end, they only saw Jesus alone. We live in a culture of celebrities, both inside the church and outside the church. Both places we try to set up heroes and set up people on high pedestals. And some of you, I know, you've been hurt or disappointed by leaders who have let you down. And the story reminds us, we do not have to look for other impressive personalities, other teachers or other heroes. May we see only Jesus. And that's my prayer for you and for me this Christmas. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Well, I want to change gears here. We've thought a little bit about the transfiguration and this story that uses this word metamorpho, this change that Jesus experienced as he appeared there on the mountain with those three disciples. It's all well and good that that Jesus was transfigured. Jesus was simply revealing who God was all along. But now when it comes to the matter of us changing, dealing with habits, confusion, feeling stuck, irritations, addictions, can we really change? It's not just children that want to morph. I believe that there is a deep desire for transformation that is inside every single one of us. That's why there are fitness clubs. There are self-help books. There are counselors and coaches. There are spiritual directors. There are motivational speakers. There are New Year's resolutions. The psychologist Adam Beck says, the single belief most toxic to a relationship is the belief that another person cannot change. Let me read that again. The single belief most toxic to a relationship is a belief that the other person cannot change. You know that little word morph or metamorpho is found in the New Testament in the transfiguration of Jesus, we read it in Matthew 17 and also in Mark chapter 9. That word metamorpho, the transfiguration, that quick change of Jesus, two times in the New Testament. But that Greek word is used two more times in the New Testament where it talks about you and me being transformed, where, where we are changed. Now, do you not find this incredible? 
The Bible speaks of our own change inside us. The possibility of transformation brings us hope and joy. You see, for you and for me too, it's morphin time. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Hear these words. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In the Old Covenant, now, Moses went into God's presence. And when Moses went into God's presence, then his face shone with the glory of God. But now, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are still able to enter into God's presence. And Paul tells us that as we, it's not just one unique individual like Moses going into God's presence. It's we all going into God's presence that we are being transformed into his image. But of course, that verse says, this work is of the Lord. We, don't place our, we place ourselves before him ready to be changed. This change doesn't come because we say, well, I'm going to try really, really hard, and this transforming glory is going to come upon me. God is pouring his glory into us. Transformation comes from the Lord. It's the same Greek word at the transfiguration. The transformation of our character is really possible. And God is pouring his glory into each follower. And the closer we walk in the light, the more we reflect his glory. You are the light of the world only because you are made radiant by the one who is the light who shines in the darkness. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I love this image. He says, imagine for a moment that you yourself are a living house. God comes in to rebuild your house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. He knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised at all. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Did you notice in that verse that Paul says, we are all being transformed? It's not a project you will do all by yourself. We need each other in it. We are all being transformed. This is my passion for our small group ministry here at our church. One of the key sentences that I like to share with small group leaders, and, and I love to repeat, is think life change. You see, when you enter into community, when you enter into Christian community with each other, it's not just another ho-hum meeting and saying, oh, well, I guess I better do this again. 
It's meeting together with the expectation that Jesus changes us little by little, us together. There's something significant about each gathering, and there's something significant about us being together today, right now. But notice here in this work of transformation, of being transformed into the image of Jesus, it is something that is ongoing and time-consuming. We are being transformed. The transfiguration of Jesus, and I think that's why that word transfiguration is differently than that word transformation. The transfiguration of Jesus was something that was instant, revealing what he was all along. But here, our transformation is ongoing. It's time-consuming. We want change quickly. We want it now. God, do this now in me. And Jesus reminds us that he will complete his work through us in this long obedience in the same direction. Romans 12, 2 is this one other verse in the New Testament that includes the same word. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Be transformed. The same word here, the same Greek word. And notice this time, it's a command. This is different here in this verse. It's actually a command. Be transformed. If you are uh, really fastidious about grammar, it is a passive imperative command. So that means it is a command, be transformed, but it's rather like let yourselves be regularly transformed. Let God do this work in you so that you might be regularly transformed. Once again, this transformation is a continual process, and that's important because in this continual process, we learn to be patient with others, and maybe more importantly, we learn to be patient with ourselves in this ongoing change of Christ-likeness. So now I'd like to return to thinking about two verses in the Christmas story in Luke 2. The news of the Savior's birth really is life-changing. In Luke's Gospel, we read, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This angel is speaking of transforming joy for all people. God came to give us a deep joy. You see, if human love could rescue us, if my friendship with you or your friendship with me could rescue us, then we wouldn't need the coming of the Savior into the world. If it could, there'd be no need for a Savior to enter But God has intervened in history. And this transforming joy is woven throughout the Gospel of Luke. Right at the beginning, the Christmas story, the speaking of transforming joy. But then in chapter 10, Luke writes again, he tells his followers, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you belong to God That's what you can rejoice about. Or in chapter uh, 15, 
the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son, we discover that God's saving love is the source of all joy. Joy is repeated again through all of those stories. And then in chapter 24, we come to the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus. You think the ascension of Jesus would be one moment, one time, where the disciples are just crying and sad that Jesus is left. And Luke writes, as Jesus was ascending into heaven, the disciples were filled with great joy. You see, The New Testament is a book of joy. This joy emanates so much from Scripture that James tells us to consider it pure joy when we face trials of various kinds. Have you had some trials this past week? Then consider it pure joy because through these things, God is going to make you mature in no other way except through this, as you wait, as you wait on the Lord for God's provision. See, joy is the trademark of the Christian life. Philip Yancey, he tells this story. He says, one day, he said, I was walking to the train station with a colleague, a friend from work. I caught a subway to Brooklyn, which ran every few minutes, but my friend took a train And if she missed it, she'd have to wait an hour. So she was always in a hurry. Well, it was a blustery day. And so we had our heads down against the wind. And when we crossed one street and looked up, there was one of those street prophets that was there. And the street prophet was holding the sign. And the sign said, the end is near. And he was muttering in a raspy voice, Jesus is coming. Start singing. I put my hand out and tried to stop my friend. Did you hear what he said? Jesus is coming. We should start singing. She brushed off my hand and kept right on walking, saying, Angela, you need to get your hearing tested. He's saying, Jesus is coming. Stop sinning. Jesus is coming. Stop sinning, muttered the street prophet in New York. And with his animal skin wardrobe and the insect diet, John the Baptist was the prototype of such wild prophets calling from the desert for his people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But my friend Angela heard a different message. Jesus is coming. Start singing. A melody of joyous hope floated through the air that first Christmas and throughout much of Jesus' life on earth, although not everyone heard it. God has chosen to give you and me today this amazing gift of joy, but we must still choose to receive it. God gives us good news of great joy, but I must choose joy. God can even send angelic messengers of good news, but somehow we must let that good news fill us. The joy of transformation doesn't just happen to us. Joy is a daily choice based on the awareness that I am loved by God. When the angels appeared to the shepherds with this good news of great joy, 
They could have said, I am cold. I am skeptical. I am staying put. I'm not going to go here and find out what they talked about. The angel was saying, trade your fear for your great joy. And they did. Isn't that the miracle? They did. They listened. They ran to find out what they were talking about. How does joy come? Joy comes from an awareness that I am loved unconditionally and that nothing, not even sickness or failure or emotional distress or war or even death, as Sumit talked about in his testimony, nothing can take away this joy. Well, Pastor Richard, last week, he he told us about a group of exuberant children that knocked over the Christ candle. Do you remember that? And they actually broke it, it, and uh, they were able to just um, put a flame to it and melt it so that it could be put together and just look, you know, actually perfect condition. Doesn't it look great today? Well, let me tell you this. Another group... This time, adults here in the church accidentally knocked over the Christ candle again this past week, and it was broken. And let me say this, they felt so bad about it that they bought another one, and it is actually a brand new candle that is there in its place. But, you know, I think even in these accidents, we have a parable. Jesus gives us his body broken for us so that no one and nothing can steal our joy. But it's given through his broken body. You know, I I think for me, there are times when I am actually afraid to choose joy. Maybe I'm scared that God will let me down. Maybe I think if I wait, a better offer of joy will come along somewhere. Or maybe I don't want to receive this gift of joy because I would rather earn it all by myself. I can work hard. I can get this joy by myself if I just work hard. You know, we spent a lot of time this fall thinking about the theme called to be saints. And I love what Gordon Smith says about joy. Listen to his words. We choose to be a joyful people. We resolve as we grow older that we will grow in our capacity for joy. What a decision that is to make. We will not become bitter old people who are cynical about life, about the government, about our children, or about God. What a powerful commitment that is. Once again, the reason for joy is not because I'm feeling good today and everything is fantastic happening around me, but it is based on the knowledge that God is sharing his love with me through Jesus. This means that we need to focus our minds on joy-inducing facts. If the main message that we take with us is news stories of scandals and corruption, and we just listen to that and zero in on that, then we'll not be filled with joy. Or if our main pursuit is movies and entertainment, 
then we will try to find the next hour or two of happiness instead of a deep and abiding joy. But Psalm 1611 says, you fill me with joy in your presence. Joy is a habit of the heart sustained through pondering who God is. That's why we want to train ourselves in holy habits in order to live in that joy. Don't you think that the world around us is hungry for joyful Christians? Now, we need to admit, none of us have fully arrived. But don't you want to lean in more to this and embrace more of that joy and pursue it more and more today and this Christmas? There was a rabbinic tradition in Jesus' day that a devout Jew would bless God at least 100 times a day. And it would start by waking up and saying this. Here is what they recited. Blessed are you, O sovereign Lord of the universe, that you have delivered me from darkness and opened my eyes. Well, I hope that I can work my way up to a hundred blessings. Are you ready for morphine time? Are you ready? Transforming joy is a daily choice based on receiving this promise of good news, of great joy. We need to invite the worship team to come up because we want to say this. Jesus is coming into the world. How do we respond to this today? Jesus is coming. Let's start singing. <laughs>